0: Hey guys, you're here with Jacob Skeppers from JPS Health and Fitness for the JPS podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest, uh, the extremely intelligent, extremely strong and jacked Mr. Lane Norton. Welcome, Lane.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that, Jacob. Uh, or form- formally strong and jacked, go- Going, go- trying to get back but hopefully still intelligent. Hopefully my my brain didn't atrophy while the rest of my
0: body did. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, Lane. So guys, for those of you um, who live under a rock and don't know who Lane is, he's a pro bodybuilder. He's a IFPA and NGA pro. He's an elite level powerlifter. He's got a Bachelor of Science in Biochem uh, with a PhD in Nutritional Sciences where he did his thesis on leucine. So... He's a very strong, jacked, shredded, and intelligent man, and somebody who has been around in the industry for quite a while, um, with an abundance of experience and wealth of knowledge. So He's somebody that I highly respect and look up to in the industry, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of great information today, as well as discussion about some pretty interesting topics uh, related to training and nutrition, so officially welcome, Lane.
1: Thank you, Jacob. Uh, I never thought I would hear the uh, the phrase, been around in this industry a while, because I'm used to being the... I still think of myself as the new kid on the block. I still think of myself as the uh, 20-year-old who is trying to break into everything. So uh, thank you for that. Um, hopefully that doesn't... But,
0: <laughs> but uh, no, it's, uh,
1: it's, been a, it's been a hell of a ride. So hopefully... And uh, hopefully got more good shit coming, so...
0: For sure. I've... Been watching you for a while, and you continue to produce the goods, and it's something that is extremely motivating uh, for myself, and I'm sure many others in the industry. So, Lane, one you. of my first questions I had for you was relating to your internal motivation, because obviously, you know, like we spoke about before we started the recording, um, doing as much as you do is extremely taxing psychologically, physically. Um, I probably do a really small percentage of what you do, and I know how hard that can be for me. So I want to know what is the underlying motivation for you to be able to do what you do and be Lane Norton?
1: Uh, well, first off, be just be myself. <laughs> and uh, I've always been um, – I don't know if this kind of set it up but the – when I was young, um, I got picked on a lot. Um, I would say pretty much verbally abused by my peers. Um, and so I think it all started out as i I'll show you what I'm worth kind of thing. And uh, I just – I wanted to do something with my life to um, leave a legacy, I guess. And you know, obviously like that motivation is not like the most pure – uh thing where it's just kind of a not revenge but you know i'll show you sort of thing um but it got me started on that path and then once i you know even at like you know when you're 12 and 13 years old being motivated and having goals isn't is exactly the cool thing you know sure. it's would to act like you don't care about anything
2: yeah
1: um and i can remember at 13 years old i had this like day planner i'd bring to school and i had written on the inside of it don't you have work to do and so you know, school didn't really come um, natural to me. I mean, I was in advanced courses, but I saw a lot of my friends who would, you know, they wouldn't even study for tests and they would get A's, and I was studying for you know, chemistry tests for like eight hours the, the day before, or, or like even days before.
2: Yeah,
1: rough. Wow. And um, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I played baseball, so I would play baseball, go to practice, I would go to practice right after school, do that for a few hours. Get home and study pretty much till I went to bed. And I mean, not every day. You know, I had some days where I know have a couple of hours to play or or, or chill out. But a lot of times, I would go home and just practice my skills in baseball because I wasn't. That didn't come natural either. Um, you guys don't really follow baseball over there much, but um, I follow Eric. I'm a five, Cressy. What's that?
0: I follow Eric Cressy. That's the same thing, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a five foot ten, right-handed first baseman in high school. And uh, first basemen are usually very tall, uh, which I'm not short, but I'm not tall. Um, and they're left-handed.
2: Yeah. And
1: so I was an average height right-handed first baseman. Yeah.
2: Right.
1: So, and I originally was, um, this story has a point, but I originally was a second baseman and we had six people trying out for the team at second base. And the coach came up to me and said, Norton, uh, I can tell you right now, if you're trying out for second base, you're not going to make the team. You're just, you're not skilled enough. Uh, but we don't have anybody at first base that can catch the ball. So uh, I had never played first base ever. And in two weeks, I went and talked to the library because I, I couldn't afford somebody to tutor me. So I went to the library and checked out books on baseball and learned how to play first base from reading books. And then I would take a tennis ball, go out to a parking lot next to me, and throw the ball up against the wall teaching myself how to catch short hops. Yeah, right. And uh, won the starting job and like, ended up lettering in high school and, and doing pretty well. Um, but it was just, you know, so I would, even when I had time to play, a lot of times it would just be like focusing on other things. Well, that, I eventually got into weightlifting because getting picked on, you know, and not getting attention from girls, I wanted to start, um, you know, uh, picking up weightlifting because I thought, okay, when people stop picking on me, I'll start getting attention from girls. Well, neither of those things happened, (laughs) but, uh, fortunately I developed some confidence and uh, it taught me goal setting. It taught me to have some confidence in myself and, Um, yeah, I just, I guess my entire life, I've just, anything I've picked up and had a passion for, I've just always wanted to see how far I could take it. So when I got into academia and I got into science, um, I just wanted to see how far I could take it. And then when I got into coaching, I wanted to see how far I could take it. And then now in business, kind of seeing how far I can take it. And then, you know, I just, it's hard to describe like your internal motivation, but I guess it's just, you know, I, I'm very aware that I'm going to die one day. And I don't. I, I saw a quote yesterday, and it said, and it described it as the perfect hell for somebody who's motivated. If on the day you die, if you had to meet the person you could have become,
2: yeah. and
1: it's greater than the person you are, that would be hell. Yeah. And that's exactly how I feel, you know. And uh, I just don't want to. I just don't want to leave any cards on the table, you know. If I if I try something and I fail, because I failed at a lot of stuff. Mm. But I always gave it my best, you know. I always gave my best, and um, you know, if that happens, it's okay. You know, I can I hold my head up, and there's there's stuff I've succeeded at too. And you know, you're either you're either gonna you know you're gonna look great when you succeed, you're gonna look dumb when you fail. But if you keep going, if you keep going, you know, it's hard. Usually, you don't fail in the long term if you keep going.
2: Yeah. In my experience,
1: and um, like I said, I just want to get to the end of my life and say, you know what? Maybe I had some stuff I messed up, maybe I had some stuff I failed at, but I gave it everything I had. I don't have any I – I can look back and I can say, you know, I have very minimal of the dreams and ideas you had that you never brought to life will stand around your bed and haunt you. So uh, – and they'll say, only you could have given us life, and I don't want to have any ghosts around my bed. So, you know, if I have a passion for something and I have a drive for something – I don't just let that sit. I act on that, and um, yeah. So that's that's kind of that's kind of what drives me. I don't want to, you know, when I feel like everything's a choice in life. Every every second of the day you spend is a choice, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying you can never like shit. I play a video game every once in a while, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like you're nobody's a robot, you know. But at the end of the day, I have to say, okay, it's about priorities, right? Don't say you don't have time. Say it's not a priority, right? Yeah. Right. Because if you say you don't have time, that's bullshit, right? Everybody's got the same 24 hours in the day. Now, maybe you've got four kids and you're, you're a single parent and you say, you know what? I don't have – I working out is not a priority to me. Yeah. That's fine. Nobody's going to fault you for that. But when you – usually when you restructure how you say things and you say it's not a priority, it changes your behavior, right? right? So I don't say I don't have time to do that. I say it's not a priority, Right? And that usually changes things. So when I have to say uh, I'm prioritizing this video game, uh, usually it keeps me from playing video games too much. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, I just you know I want to look back into the tank and say I gave it everything I had, and um, you know put take it as far as I can go. And I I I want to change the world. Like I I want to I want to do something to contribute so much to society that when people look back they say Wow. They say that. They say, well, that guy gave it everything he had and he left the world a better place than he found it. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at.
0: And I definitely think you're, as I'm sure you're aware, you're quite unique in the sense that you have so much passion, emotion, and drive because it's not something that a lot of people are born with. And whether you are born with it or whether you know it comes from hard work, I think it's a combination of both. But um, you've definitely got some... Attributes that you know separate you from the rest, which is why you've done so many things that so many others haven't done, Lane. Um, and I watched your recent video on you know battle for your life, and I found it um, very motivating and inspiring um, for the reasons that you know we've just spoken. You about. you
1: you mean you, you didn't get offended like some of the people in the comments?
0: <laughs> oh, bro! So many people I, take way too many things personally and you know out uh, of context, don't they? Um, yeah. No, but I found it really good because I I could relate to a lot of that because, you know, as a business owner, as somebody who wants to do the best in their training, help other people, like I could relate to the fact that, you know, not every day we wake up wanting to, you know, be so motivated. We don't just wake up and think, oh, you know, today's going to be fantastic like every other day of my life. There's there's definitely shit days, um, as you said. But you spoke about, you know, your inner demons um, being, you know, indifference, pain, And the opinions of other others, and you know, like you spoke about waking up at the end of life. You know, if you look back on it and go, "Wow, you know, what have I? Have I even done anything?" Um, But what is you know the life that you want to create? Because you spoke about that, and I want to know what your you know end game is with your ambition. Uh,
1: Paul asked me. Paul actually asked me that today. Um, You know, I wanted first off, you know. I don't want to be one of the people who changes the world but neglects the people closest to him, you know, um, and you know, one of my, I don't want to call it a negative and I'm not going to change how I am, but I tend to just give people my trust. Like, and so I've had that really taken advantage of over the years, uh, with people who I thought, uh, were my friends and ends up, you know, when you've done something, there are some people who just, Want to use you for whatever reason? Um, I don't know if it's a conscious thing, but you know, I've had people who I've helped them, you know, build up their business. And as soon as their business gets good enough to where they're on their own, it's kind of like, well, see you, you know. And so I, I, I want to focus on the people who have been there with me for for since the beginning, you know, who have really, um, I, I get a lot of joy out of helping others, and like so. To see, for example, uh, Paul Ravella, uh, my good friend, to see his business doing so well, uh, knowing that I, I helped him with that. And now that he's, he's completely self-sufficient, like he doesn't need me for anything, um, that actually gives me a great deal of joy. Um, and so and my friend Will Grazion, same thing. So like, I, I really enjoy doing those sorts of things and, and, and really helping my friends and, and having that close-knit bond with people. And uh, so that's one thing is I want to I want to have a lot of love in my life, you know, with with the people who are important. And then um, as far as like overall business and those sorts of things, you know, I, I mean, you know, if I go out on a limb here, like Avatar Nutrition, which is our, our kind of automated coaching service.
0: say so now I, think, I really, now I think that you're you're reading my script here because I'm about to ask you about <laughs> that. That was my next question.
1: Yeah. So. You know, we have 7,500 members now. So for people who aren't familiar, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you the story since you're going to ask about it. Uh, Mark Springer, who's the CEO of Avatar, uh, I'm CSO, Chief Scientific Officer. Sounds important. Um, and uh, Mark came to me about two years ago and said, you know, I want to create like a macronutrient generator, um, this sort of thing. And the more we got into it, the more I was like, you know, I don't know about a macro generator because anybody who's coached for long enough knows that you can have members on a sheet. And then you give it to somebody and they react completely differently than you would think, right? Um, Especially some of these people who are like chronic dieters, their metabolism is just so slow. Um, So I wanted to create a system that was responsive, you know, so you could weigh in every week, you could check in every week. And then it would adjust based on how you you did things. And basically what we did was try to turn my coaching into an automated computer program. And, uh, you know, I I can't take all credit for it. I wrote the original algorithm, but... uh, My friend Katie Coles, who has a Master's in Nutrition, is a registered dietitian. She's probably done more of the work on the overall algorithm in terms of tweaking it since I wrote the original one than than, than I have. And um, now our raw data sheet, our uh, secret sauce, if you will, uh, is like five pages of formulas like filled. Uh, In fact, we just just had – we're having like a two-week discussion that's ongoing about how to integrate – uh, the menstrual cycle for females like so how no to way. offset that I mean, you would think it'd be a simple thing just neglect this weigh in but there's all kinds there's of not weird stuff simple. yeah what's
0: that no <laughs> <laughs> but like like you know
1: we we we've we've had a lot of issues where like if we had we've had probably 30,000 people through the system so far and I would say it took us 5,000 people before we actually became proficient because yeah, right. uh, uh um you know there's just so many random things that come up that you can't ever account for. In a computer system, there's no nuance. It's either yes or no. It's binary, you know? And so we would have, you know, somebody, there'd be like a weird, like somebody would miss a way and and then they were on vacation and then they weren't compliant. And it would give like some crazy weird yeah. adjustment, right? And so we had to go through it and like keep putting constraints on everything. So there's like there's like, okay. This happens, but only if this is satisfied and this happens yeah. and in this case, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> context like now now it runs very, very efficiently um, and I'd say works at like a 99.7% uh, optimization in terms of making the right adjustment when we wanted to make that adjustment. So, um, you know, as soon as Skynet will be self-aware, uh, any Terminator fans get that reference. Um But, um, you know, we we have a lot of stuff we want to do to it, but I really feel like that, you know, we have 7,500 active members. I really feel like by the end of the year, that could be 20,000. I feel like by the end of next year, it could be 100,000 and at some point be a million, you know, because it's a, you know, it's basically bringing affordable nutritional consultation to people for $10 a month and, you know, there'll always be room for personalized coaching because, again, at the end of the day, it's a computer program, so there's no there's no nuance, right? And there's no emotional support. You can't <clears throat> you can't really uh, neglect that in terms of you know what what that means to have somebody say like, where maybe they just had a hard week, and you say, hey, take a day off. You know what I mean? Or or you know what? Have a free meal. Don't worry about it. like a computer program is not going to tell you that, right? Um, but for ten dollars a month, I feel like it's pretty hard to beat, so it's uh, something I'm very proud of. And man, you want to talk about something we failed over and over at? Oh, like the the launch of Avatar was absolute was an absolute disaster. The company that designed, and I don't mind calling them out, their name Socius Marketing. And they're located in Tampa. Uh, never used them, and Socius, if you're watching, hi. Um, so <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a savage.
2: Uh, yeah, <laughs> but um,
1: you know. They um, like when it, they told us they tested the system, all this kind of stuff. We launched it and it didn't work at all. Like it, yeah. the adjustments didn't work. The it couldn't take payments. It didn't work on iOS. It didn't work on well. Wow. on Chrome. It didn't work on Firefox. Like all the stuff, and we had to pay another person to basically unscrew up everything. And it probably took us three months before it actually worked really well. And the only thing that kept us afloat was the fact that Mark and Katie were such kick-ass um, uh, customer support people, and that's what kept us afloat. And, um, you know, eventually we got through it, and uh, it was really a testament to everybody's resolve because, man, there I, you know, I've had experience with small business. There were several nights where I was talking to Mark and Katie off of the ledge, you know.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, it put everything into this. Katie quit her job. She had a stable job. She quit it, you know, for, for Avatar. So it was um, – it was tough, but you know, no risk, no reward. And uh, now we're starting to reach some of those benefits. And hopefully, I mean, right now we're not even taking paychecks from Avatar. We're reinvesting everything we make back into the company.
0: Yeah. And that quite literally fed into my next question, which was what are, besides the benefits of being a really cheap um, tool for people to get their calories and macros and adjustments based on the feedback that it gives the systems? There's obviously a number of drawbacks with the lack of personal contact, but what do you see as some of the other drawbacks to um, avatar, as well as the benefits?
1: Well, you know, we really—that's—that's a great question. We've really tried to fill that gap, so we've started a a Facebook group for our members, so they can go in and ask questions. A lot of times, the other members answer the questions, and we also um, have—we have great customer support staff. We have about a half dozen people. Who answer phone calls, emails, everything, okay, and yeah, uh, cool. they're very, very fast, and they're very good. They're all people we trust, and uh, you know they're able to usually get people answers. If they don't, they bring it to Mark or Katie or myself, and we're able to get them answers pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I wouldn't say anybody waits more than a day to get an answer for something. You know, yeah. so still, like even, you know, obviously, no, it's it's not the, the personalized coaching, but uh, it's pretty damn close.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: Drawbacks are. You know, drawbacks are obviously like um, honestly, the fact that it is so cheap. Some people just don't engage with the system, right? Like if it's ten dollars, no, ten dollars a loss. month,
2: yeah.
1: right? So there's no, there's no like if you hire a coach and you're paying them three hundred bucks a month, yeah. you know, you better use it. You know, there's going to be incentive for you to use that because it was so expensive. So. I mean that's just a psychology thing, but it does happen, you know. I found that I got much more serious and better clients when my prices went up. Yeah, you know, I just you just somebody who's going to spend five hundred dollars for a month, they're usually not going to mess around, you yeah. know. Now there's 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 exceptions to that, but for the most part it's true. So um, I, I see that you know it's the, the drawbacks as well is like if you're like a contest prep kind of prep. like we have people who have used it for contest prep. Yeah, that's. Um, right. But we don't have – we don't have it set up for that just yet to where you can enter in – like well, eventually we want to get to where you enter your show date, you enter your body fat percentage, you enter what division you're doing. And you know it's not going to be perfect because we're you – know like <coughs> – pardon me. I'm going to tickle my throat. Um, like for example, you know Alberto Nunez I assume? So Alberto like the most shredded human being on the planet and when he went in and got dexed at uh, – when he was just like veins in his glutes. He dexted it like 6.5%. There's no way in hell he was 6.5%, right? So, um, if you um, you know, that's the objective data it's going to use. And it's going to say you're not lean enough, you know. Now, eventually, like this is way in the future, uh, we have a person who's a, a tech genius who's writing algorithms for us now um, who we want to be able to – to, to basically write something to where it could just you upload a picture and based on your 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 the picture we can accurately predict your body fat so that's something we want to do that is so we have all kinds of crazy ideas for this thing but you know like I said there are some there are some downsides some people really like that that personal attention and there'll always be room for that you know like it's it's um, there'll always be room for that um, but you know it's kind of like I mean, you can Google anything. I mean, you can get lesson plans. Like, you can, you can take a whole biochemistry course if you want and not pay a dime, like, just based on stuff that's out there, you know? But why, so why do people go to school? Because they like that personal attention of having somebody tell them, hey, do X, Y, Z, right? And you'll, by the end, you'll have some knowledge. Uh, by the way, students out there, um, yes, your grades matter, but if you don't actually fucking remember the material, it doesn't help you. So I deal with so many people who, like, they got like an A and then they forgot all the material. It's like you just, you wasted however many thousands of dollars taking that class, if you don't remember anything. Yeah. So,
0: that's, uh. Um, By the way, can I curse? I guess it's probably a little bit yeah, to ask. Of that. course, nah. Of course. Sweet! We, sweet! We've already ruined it now, <laughs> so we might as well just go for it. Um, yeah. So, left and right. So, I'm a big fan of what you're doing with Avatar. I love that. I think that's one of the uh, most brilliant concepts um, for giving people you know, more affordable access to better coaching and nutritional advice as opposed to following fad diets and other nonsense. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Lane, was about, you know, your debating online with other, I guess, you know, public figures in the industry and stuff. And personally I believe <laughs> I knew you I would you like this one. Who me? You? Never. Um I never get my opinion on anything. And I personally believe the discussion is absolutely fantastic for the community. As much as I'm sure you might get pissed off, you know, other people might, I won't name names, other people might get pissed off and there seems to be all this animosity. I think that it sparks great discussion and the further development of theories, concepts and ideas. So I'm all for it, um, as I'm sure you probably are in a sense as well. Um, But do you find that, you know, balancing and picking your moments to be something that is hard for you because you're so passionate about what you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very passionate, emotional guy. So it's hard for me. Like my friends have been all, like Eric Helms tells me all the time, It's like, Lane, why don't you just let that go? I'm like, because I don't want to, you know? Like, like, <laughs> that's just how I am, you know? Um, it actually causes me more stress to not, like, address a lot of things. Yeah, so. for sure. um, You know, I I think that, and you know, I respect anybody who, like Eric, who just is always civil, never gets into it. You know, I think for the most part, I think people know they can rile me up, probably, so they probably (laughs) do that because of that. But, um, you know, like, I'm usually pretty respectful to people who are respectful to me. Um, Usually when I get ornery is when. Two cases. If somebody's disrespectful straight off to me, then all bets are off. Like, I'm not going to be respectful to you if you're disrespectful to me. Maybe I should handle it differently, but that's just how I. I'm, like I said, a passionate, emotional guy. It yeah. Um If somebody just is blatantly a zealot and does not care about in, uh, evidence, I get very annoyed by that, and I usually get upset. And, uh, because it's just that, that whole mindset bothers me. You know, like, I've been. People – like I've been wrong about so many things in my life and every time I was wrong, I was like, wow, this is great. There was something I wasn't doing the best way possible and now I can change it and do yeah. better, right? Yeah. So like being wrong – being wrong is a beautiful thing. It's a awesome thing because if you're wrong, then you weren't doing things as good as you could. And now you can make improvements because guess what? If, we're all, if, if I'm doing everything the best way possible, then I've already plateaued, right? right? So – like that would suck. So I hope I'm doing some shit wrong, and I can figure it out and make it better. But you know, that's that's you know I had I had something happen on Twitter the other day where I uh, uh, did I call out Tim Noakes or I think somebody sent me something. He's a low carb zealot, but he's a professor, so people listen to him. Um, and uh, I said, you know, look, here's all this evidence that if you equate calories and protein, yep. that carbohydrate intake. And even sugar just doesn't make a difference in body composition or even health markers. People are like, What about inflammation? Well, here's a study showing 110 grams of sugar in a day versus 10 grams of sugar in a day, calories equated to no difference in the inflammation. So, um, and uh, you know, so I say that, and this guy comes out and says, Well, I lost 40 pounds on a low carb diet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, Okay,
2: yeah,
1: I didn't say it doesn't work, I just said it's not better. So it's amazing like what I say and then what people hear or what the perception is, right? Yeah. Like I never said it didn't work. In fact I've said, hey, if you like a ketogenic diet, if you like a low carb diet, by all means knock yourself out. I just find for most people it's not a sustainable lifestyle. You know, if you're telling me you're never gonna eat pasta or bread or anything like that again, like Okay, but I don't think many people can sustain that. But if you can, great. More power to you. Like, go for it. Like, I have no problem with that whatsoever, you know? And I said this even back in, I would say, 2004, 2005, when I was getting into graduate school. I said, I was at, had the, having a discussion with some professors, and I said, you know, I think the best diet is the one you can stick to, you know? Because um, my, dad, my dad did a ketogenic diet back in 2003, 2004. Lost 30 pounds. Put 55 back on
0: it. He's better off before he died, you know? Yeah, 100%. And um, do you think that when you engage in debate online, do you find that there's often a point where the discussion is no longer contributing to the community as a whole? Uh, when you debate with Law McDonald, McDonald, yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> what do you mean? There's usually,
1: so many Law's with Yeah, he usually... He usually calls somebody a cut within like the first five minutes. So then it kind of goes downhill from there. Uh, so, sorry, Lyle. Because uh, he would be watching. Um, so, I uh, – yes. And usually like when I debate with people, I'm not – like the person I was debating with about the low-carb diet, I'm not debating to change their mind. They're not going to change their mind. The, the likelihood they're going to change their mind, no. I'm debating with them for the few thousand people or a hundred people that are watching – who maybe I can influence their decision, yeah. right? Um, and so that's what I'm doing it for. I'm yeah. not doing it for to change their mind, you know, because because for the most part, people's, you know, you it's hard to change people's minds. But I mean, I I I'm a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, if you show me enough evidence of anything, you know, I'm I'm willing to revisit my position. Like I'm not I'm not married to anything. At the end of the day, I want to shit. I want to do the best thing possible. People ask me like. Oh, Lane, like, this whole, like, branch change between meals, do you do that for me? Well, yeah. Like, why wouldn't I? Like, mm. I have this article about, like, it always seemed weird to me. Like, Lane, do you do daily underlying periodization? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lane, do you do you eat, you know, one point, do you eat over one gram of protein per pound of body weight? Yeah. Like, like you know, so I always found it funny because, but I guess there's a lot of people who, they say, hey, do this, and then they don't do it. You know what I mean? So, it's, uh... Yeah, I always felt like, um, you know, I want to do the best thing possible because at the end of the day, I'm an athlete. Like, I want to I want to win, you know? So, like, um, flexible dieting, I I got to that not because I was looking for an excuse to eat crap food. I got to that because I found that my weight would go up and my body fat would go up even higher in the off-season because I was so restricted during prep that by the time I got out, I just went crazy mm. and I put, you know, 20, 25 pounds on very quickly and now I'm already behind the eight ball heading into my offseason. And what I found was that, you know, at least for me personally and a lot of the clients I worked with, if I just allowed myself some flexibility, you know, I still gained weight, but, like, it was much more manageable.
2: Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, like, I was able to stay leaner in the offseason and then get leaner during prep. And so I did it because it was, it was better. It was more optimal, not because I wanted an excuse to eat garbage food, like, you know, and, and for the – it was funny. Uh, there was a guy online who wanted to debate me. Said he wanted to debate me at the ISSN conference, and then backed out very quietly about four weeks out. Um, his name was Phil Viz. Hi, Phil. Hi. Um, so, and his, his um, Fantastic. I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I really I don't him. care. Um, so um, you know, if you still wants to debate, bro, we can do it anytime. So I'm
0: gonna tag Phil in this video.
1: Please, by all means. Um, so he was gonna so. And um, I went to – he was going to argue clean eating versus flexible dieting. Yep. And uh, I, I, I went to his Facebook page and I, he was – right there was a, a cheat meal he was having. I'm, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, this is like 7,000 calories. You know what I mean? Like it was like all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, I'm like OK, so here's what I normally eat during a week. Here's all the junk food I eat, quote unquote junk food, right? Dude, it's less. Mm. Like by allowing yeah, myself I mean, some flexibility – not being, not having a YOLO day, you know, I'm actually eating less junk food than you. Yeah. So how is, that, how is that cheating or less hardcore? Like it just doesn't make sense, you know. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was funny that people like restricting yourself to ridiculous levels but then having a qualified binge day and that being hardcore but allowing some flexibility but hitting your macros consistently every day was somehow lazy.
2: Yeah, yeah
1: I just – so anyways, I, you know, but I wasn't planning to debate him for his benefit. Yeah. I was planning to debate him for everybody else's benefit.
0: Yeah, right. So, yeah, that's obviously what I've seen is, you know, your discussions and debates with people always um, brings out more information and, you know, just helps give us better ideas about, yeah, concepts, theories, and, you know, how to interpret information, which I think is always good. And you spoke about briefly there how you're always willing to evolve and, you know, change your opinion based on research, evidence and, you know, become a better athlete and whatnot. Um, Your fat program has become like folklore in the bodybuilding community. It's, um... Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's... I
1: should have made some damn money from that. Jeez. (laughs) Bro,
0: you could have made a truck ton of money from that. But it it was... Story of my life. (laughs) It was quite literally, I guess, the... um, you know, the first real mainstream program that promoted uh, greater frequency than the typical bro split. Um, and what I wanted to ask you was, I, you, I'm pretty sure you wrote fat in like 2010 maybe. Um, is that right? Oh, well, the the, oh, well the
1: concept for that was like back in 2004. Yeah, I didn't uh, get around to writing up the full thing until 2010. But
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. So, So that was six, seven years ago. My question to you, Lane, is, um with advances in the literature as uh they stand today, um how would you change, you know, your your FAT program as it stood in two thousand ten? What are the big game changes since then?
1: Well, you know, the I think what I need to point out is that, you know, fat was just a concept and the 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 one that's on Simply Shredded, which I'm assuming is what you're yeah, referring a, to. Yeah. Um crazy to see how much that website's blown up. I worked with Anthony. Yeah, he I remember. Runs I, when it, it it when he was when he's a kid, you know, like pretty wild, um, but awesome because you know like that's he's, he had an idea, he took it, and probably made more money than me in the industry. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, the the point, and I always said this was that was just a sample routine that was in there, and that's kind of what I did right based on my weak points, based on what I needed. But I always said, you know, if you need more volume, you know, if your chest is lagging, maybe you do more volume for chest or maybe you add in this accessory movement, you know, those sorts of things. Um, And, you know, it's not so much that I would really change anything with regards to it. It's more so it's just, you know, people say, well, pH 3 versus fat. Well, they're different programs, you know, they're different concepts of programming. And depending on where, you know, if I was a you know, advanced slash intermediate bodybuilder, you know, fat is probably more applicable for me. If I was a power lifter focusing on my big three, then pH three is probably more, more, you know, valuable for me. But, you know, it's, you know, the concept of fat is, you know, you're doing everything two times a week. Well, if you have a weak point that really needs to be brought up and you're stagnated, well, you can do something three times a week on fat, you know.
0: Sorry, language you... words. We think of D, the DUP is Mike solo Sorry, you just cut out What's that for a second. You just cut the out there for a second, but all good. You're back.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you could do, a, you know, a certain body part three times a week, or, um, you know, we just we think about the DUP as Mike Zordo says yeah. as being everything three times a week, which is not what it is. You could be doing DUP, doing everything once a week, as long as you're undulating the repetition schemes every time you go in. Yeah. Um, so. You know, fat was just kinda of, you know, pH three is probably a little bit more heavy on the on the power lifts themselves and um, and more frequency, but it's not that dissimilar in terms of um, the overall uh, concept of programming. It just depends on you know, if you're somebody who's making progress working out everything twice a week, by God don't go to three times, you know, because eventually you're probably gonna have to get there. You know, eventually you're gonna have to get there to where you, you get that frequency out there because um, you know, as you get more advanced, you start to stagnate. And if you get, if you stagnate, you're going to have to add volume and overload somehow. So, um, you know, it's not necessarily that one's better than the other. And, you know, there's not a lot of things that I would change about it. Cause again, it was just a sample program. You know, it, it would be one of those things where i try to educate somebody to say, cause people say, well, you've got stiff-legged deadlifts in here. Can you substitute dead, regular deadlifts. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. It just depends on, the, you know, I was trying, you know, I was, you know, I was thinking with squats, you know, you're getting a very, you know, uh, a quad movement. You know, obviously you're getting some hamstrings and glutes as well. But then with stiff leg deadlifts, you're getting a very, very posterior hams, glutes, lower back. You know, but if you were a, a more, you know, interested in powerlifting, obviously you'd want to do more of the competition deadlifts. So it's, you know, it's adaptable to whatever. Um, yeah. And obviously goals are, you know, goals are – but I feel like if you want to be strong and you want to have good hypertrophy – FAT is a great program uh, and concept of programming that will help almost anybody.
0: Yeah, and I'd like you to elaborate on, you know, obviously sample programs are great for, I guess, one type of person who's just wanting to follow a program. They don't want to know anything. They're just like, give me the program, give me the program, I want to go do it. But at the same time, it's almost... Heightening that sense of here's your silver bullet. This is the magic program. Yeah. This is it. Can you explain to the listeners how you devise the program and the principles that underlie the methodology?
1: Well, I think when you're looking at anybody, first you have to ask what's their training status. Yeah. Um, you have to figure out like what's just like uh, finding out the training status. It's kind of like finding out what's somebody's base basal-, basal metabolic rate. Like what's their what's their what's their maintenance calories? We need yeah. to know that before we can. Because we know their maintenance calories, then we can say, okay, they want to gain. All right, well, we're going to go this much above maintenance. Then we can structure out protein, carbs, fats, right? Um, if we know where they are as a lifter, like, okay, they're used to a one-time-a-week frequency. Well, probably not a good idea if I jump them up to four times a week, right, for squats or something like that. Um, so you know. starting point. Oh, okay. What's that?
0: So that finding their starting point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so – you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tr- try and find that starting point, and then structure everything around that based on what overall volume I want them to hit, mm. and then you know, based on what their goals are, I'm gonna you know use exercise selection, uh, rep range, all those sorts of things to kind of map out what their program is gonna be. But uh, yeah, it's gonna start with what is their what is their training status, and I think a lot of people just go, oh, you're a bikini girl. Here's a 12 week bikini program, right? hip thrusts before it's the guy didn't to have her doing hip thrusts five days a week you know like yeah. she's she's not going to be skilled enough at the movement so um i think it's one of those things that uh that, that it's you know it's like it's like saying you know like when people say dup i was like that's like dup is a program like flexible dieting is a specific diet right no it is a system of dieting known as a system of programming same yep. sort
2: of thing. Okay. So yeah. it's a,
1: con- it's, a concept. it's a concept. Yeah. And uh, like my, my friend Mike Zordos always says, um, you know, if you if you if you are if you're asking how many sets and reps should I do, it's a nonsensical question. You're, you're you what you're what you're wanting is magic. You're wanting a magic formula, and that just doesn't exist, right? Yeah. I have people all the time say, hey, how how many protein, carbs, and fats should I eat? I'm like, well, that's like walking into a financial advisor and saying, what's the best investment? Yeah. It's like, well, what? How much money do you have saved? What are your goals? Do you have any debt? You no know, context. when do you want to retire? Like, there's all kinds of variables, and you have to give it context. And that's why, you know, anybody who follows me on Twitter, uh, I think I beat the context stick like you know 18 times a day. So,
0: I don't think uh, you ever really, it too much.
1: Yeah, and so it's more about like I'm not trying to trying to insult people. I'm actually trying to make them realize that. You know, and this is a science thing too. Like You have to ask the right question. My, my PhD advisor, Don Lehman, was brilliant, one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. And he said – it didn't make sense at first, but then uh, you know, after five years of him beating it into my head, it made sense. He said, if you don't ask the right question, you don't get the right answer. Yeah. And as basic as that may seem, it's very true. And you'll see a lot of studies out there where I'll go – I'll read the conclusion. I'll read what the media is saying about it. And I'll go look at the study and I'll go, well, they didn't even design it to answer the question that they were asking. Or they, Like they, their question wasn't even that. Like they didn't, you know, it's not appropriate. And yeah. so, you know, asking the right question and putting the right parameters on it is very important. I think a lot of people miss that.
0: Yeah, sure. And I just want to ask you a few questions relating to a bodybuilding contest prep, because you are obviously um, quite knowledgeable and experienced, which I think are two. Um <laughs> yeah, we'll use that as the uh, caption for the um, YouTube thumbnail. Still <laughs> so got it, baby. <laughs> and I think that's two things that are, you know, extremely important for a coach is knowledge and experience because a lot of you know, you have two ends of the spectrum. You have, you know, the PhD, the nerds, the guys who know the physiology and the science like the back of the hands, but they've never spent um any measurable time in the gym and then you have the bros who just lift and don't look at the research and say they're all idiots and I think you're a great combination of both in a contest prep my question to you, lane is how does training volume manage in a calorie deficit for long period of calorie deficit
1: it's a great question i think you know it is well sorry about a lot of questions. <laughs> So I, I agree with you. First off, that I think if, you know education is important, but so is experience, and it's hard to say which over the other.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. But you know, I will say you know, like Cliff Wilson, Cliff doesn't really have an educational background in nutrition, and he does a really great job coaching. Like we don't agree on everything, but you know, it's hard to argue with how well he does with 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 people.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. I do. Th- so I I think, I think it would be like um. Let's play like an architect. Okay? An architect has to be good at math and drawing, right? If they're going to sketch out all this stuff. Yeah. Now, does a mathematician know the concept behind what he's going to sketch out? Yes. But could they sketch it? They don't have that experience, right? Of drawing. Yeah. Could an artist copy something that uh, an architect has done? Yes. But if you if you ask them to make it from scratch based on the the framework and the context they can't do it right because all I can do is re- regurgitate that one image.
0: That's a great note. So
1: that's so that's why I, I feel like I've, I people used to call me the physique architect, mm-hmm. and I think it's actually a nice a nice, uh, a nice um, you know and it's really like kind of the like I always like look to look at mixed martial arts because you see the evolution of it. Like first it was just uh, a karate guy versus a jiu-jitsu guy and the boxer versus a wrestler, right? And then you had guys who were wrestlers who learned a little bit of boxing. And then you had guys who, you know, they were kind of well rounded. And now you've got guys who have been trained in mixed martial arts since they were kids. Yeah. You know, like you've got that that's just their sport. Like they, they're not boxers, they're not strikers, they're mixed martial artists.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I feel like that's what we've got now in coaching a little bit, in that, you know, at first it was like you said, it was all bros or it was mm. people who, you know, never yeah. listened, never really touched much weight. And now you've got so many people who, you know, have done advanced degrees and also compete. You know, Eric Helms, Peter Fitchin, uh, you know, uh, a lot of other people. And so um, I think that – I think it's a great thing. And I think that you're going to have a lot of people coming up who are doing it because – I got a really nice compliment from somebody the other day. So I can repeat it without hopefully sounding too arrogant. (laughs) But – they said, you know, you've really been a trendsetter in the industry because you were, like, one of the first people to, to do online coaching, like, really – probably the first to do it on a large scale. Mm. And then, like, people didn't hear about flexible dieting before you. And then you were kind of one of the first guys who went from natural bodybuilding to powerlifting. Yeah. And then, like, Avatar. And now there's kind of copycats of Avatar. And then there's, you know, all, all, all kinds of stuff. I, I ended up, you know, kind of – but I think what happens, doing an advanced degree while competing, like most people said, you can't do it, you, you have to pick one, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, make, you know, making a living in natural bodybuilding. People told me that I was wasting my time with natural bodybuilding because I never make a living in it, you know? And I didn't make a living in it, but I made a living in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of times what happens is, you know, people just need to see it done once. And then they can go, well, I can do it if he can do it, right? So, um, a great example of that is Roger Bannister, the first person who broke the four-minute mile, right, 1,600 uh, yeah. meters. Um, before he broke it, a lot of people thought it was physically impossible to break.
2: Yeah.
1: After he broke it, the next year there was like over a dozen people who broke it. Yeah. And since then, there have been tens of thousands of people who have done it, including high school kids. Yeah. And uh, so That's what changed what – Did our physiology change that much? No. What changed was when they got on the starting line, they knew it was possible. Somebody had done it before, right? Now, I'm not trying to compare myself to breaking the four-minute mile or anything like that. But I think –
2: yeah.
1: My best ever is uh, 557. That's my best ever. So – but the point being is sometimes we we need to see somebody go out and do it uh, before we actually try it ourselves. But um, I think that it's very – Education and experience, both are really important. And um, you know, but if I had to pick one, I'd probably say experience. To be honest with you, um, as much as I, as much as I value my education, but you know, that being said, I always encourage people, you know, and, and people who come to me. And you know, I actually do like business consulting now for people in the fitness industry. And um, a lot of them they come to me and they say, "Well, I'm thinking about going back to school, but I'm not sure." And I said, "Listen, whether you decide to or not, always learn." You know, there's, there's. I think school is great as long as you get something out of it. Um, but always be ready to learn. And I said, um, have the uh, heart of a teacher, but the mind of a student. Yeah. And so like
2: that.
1: that is, you're always willing to share the information you learn, but you're also humble enough that when, when you, when you don't know something, you know what to say I don't know. And people who follow me, you know, a lot of people will think I'm an arrogant guy, and you know, I'm a pretty confident guy, but I also know when to say. Hey, that's not my area specialty. Like, that's that's not me, and I'm usually pretty good about saying that. So, um, did I answer the question? Did I
0: actually answer the question? So, <laughs> you you went this way, and now I'm going to help <laughs> bring you back this way because I okay, was perfect. Because I that was I'm very much a tangent guy. No, so. nah, that was awesome. <laughs> that was, but that answered some of my latter questions on, um, you know, experience versus um, knowledge. So, we're jumping it. We're jumping the gun here, which is perfect. Um, but the question was training volume during contest prep, um, ah. and we can we can relate we can relate this now back to your discussion about experience and knowledge. Yeah. What does your knowledge tell you versus what you've experienced when it comes to training volume during a prep? I think that a
1: lot of it's going to depend on what you want to do: cutting calories versus adding more cardio versus adding some more training volume. Okay, cool. I think as opposed to cutting calories or, or, or uh, cardio, you could add more training volume. And there's, there's really no data on this that I'm aware of. There's two schools of thought. The first school of thought is, since you're dieting, you have this catabolic signal already.
2: Yeah.
1: And your anabolic pushback against that is if you are doing enough that your body says, we need to keep this muscle around, right? So uh, if we add more training volume, uh, one, there's a calorie number needs to keep this muscle, right the, the the pushback against that is well, what's needed to build muscle is a lot more than what's needed to maintain it. Uh, and there is some data on that that, that but I think that's in, a, in, in uncontrolled calories. so uh, and that is, that is around you know,
0: 10 sets per week, correct?
1: Uh, you know, I—I—I, I, I, to be quite honest with you, I don't know exactly offhand. And it probably depends on the training status of the person yeah, is sure my guess. guess. Um, but, you know, it does appear that what's required to maintain muscle is a lot less than what is required to build it. So some people have said, well, while you're in this negative calorie deficit and you're feeling like crap, why not cut down your training volume? I don't think there's a wrong or a right answer. I will tell you that um, – At a certain point during contest prep, I just feel so shit that, like, the idea of adding squat training volume, it's very difficult to stomach. And I usually actually – mostly what trains is I wouldn't say my training volume goes down. I would say I change exercise selection. Like, I just – by the end, the idea of trying to do squats, like, I feel so unstable because I'm so lean, you know, that I just – and I'm somebody who abhors leg press and hack squats. Yeah. I love to squat. Like it's, it's my reason for being alive, you know. But um, by, the end of my, by the end of a contest prep, I'm just, I'm just so worn out. You know, I'm worried I'll pass out doing a squat, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's just – it gets to be that terrible.
0: Yeah. And during contest prep, do you ever change the um, approach towards intensity? So obviously we spoke about volume. Um, and you're sort of just adjusting that with you know, exercise selection and you know, how you're um, inducing a deficit, whether it be cardio or calories. But with intensity, do you go from, with yourself um, or clients, a set prescription of a percentage of one rep max to RPE, or is it RPE, the entire prep? Like, How do you tackle intensity and load?
1: Uh, the way I like to do it is a combination of both. So I will have kind of set percentages that I want to hit. But if I get in and it's just I'm not feeling it, because you are going to lose strength. Like, yeah. that's, that's, it's going to happen. Um, and by the way, everybody, you're going to lose lean body mass if you're natural. Like, that's going to happen. Um, you know, the average in the study, like, and most men, actually, every single case study on natural bodybuilders shows that the men are hypogonadal by the time they're, they're, like, contest lean. Like, it's just, it's a shit thing to get yeah. to get that lean. Like it really, it sucks. You know. Um, people ask me why I haven't competed again. And I'm just like, I'm just not ready to feel like
0: shit. To be honest with you. I enjoy manhood. Um, what's that? I enjoy manhood.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it was funny. I was on a forum one time and people were like, "What do you miss most during contest prep?" And everybody's like, "Cheesecake, pizza." And, the, and one guy goes, "Sex with my wife." Yeah. And everybody's like, yeah, we didn't want to say <laughs> yeah. it, but that guy is 100% correct, you know, yeah. like, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you may do it, but you're literally going through the motions, you yeah. know? <laughs> you're
0: thinking so, about your next meal.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, hey. uh, not today, today was a low-carb day, not today, you know, <laughs> high-carb day tomorrow, tomorrow, you know? <laughs> um, so, I think that, um, that intensity, I, I do... I do try to maintain some intensity because I am concerned about. Look, trying to maintain some strength because I am a strength athlete as well. Um, but I probably back off a little bit. But I, I would say mostly maintain that. Um, but I would say what I change more is the exercise selection. Yeah. You know, just to something that's a little bit more low risk. Um, yeah. Because it, by the end, you are like you're just so. It's so hard to focus even in the gym. It's hard to focus like on like. Anything, mm. and so um, just you know the idea of having to, because heavy squats, like if you're doing heavy doubles on squats, like that is, it may not be physically fatiguing in terms of fatigue, but it is very mentally fatiguing. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's that's, that's that's something to think about. So I I use, I would say I change more the exercise selection, not so much the sets and reps.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, fantastic response. Thank you, Lane. And you just briefly touched on how. You're both a strength athlete and a bodybuilder. And, you know, being a dual athlete is obviously, um, you know, there's conflicting interests, you know, due to, you know, the said principle and specificity. Because if you're training for strength, well, you're neglecting, you're not maximizing your hypertrophy per se and vice versa, even though they, you know, work together. But how do you. Not unless you want
1: to spend four hours or five hours in the gym, yeah. Yeah,
0: correct. Um, But how do you transition from. Um, bodybuilding to powerlifting in terms of mindset, because I've done both, and my personal experience, and I'd like you to, you know, give us your insight on this, is that bodybuilding is very um, intrinsic, feel-related, whereas powerlifting is very extrinsic. It's you know external cues A to B. How do you change yeah. your training mentality um, when shifting from one to the other? Well, usually by
1: the end of a contest prep, I'm so sick of it that I'm ready to do something different. You know, yeah. like it's – it doesn't take much. Um, you know, I guess I guess the hardest thing is, is, is letting go of that competition lean physique. That's probably more the hard thing to transition from and knowing you're going to put on some body fat. It's going to be difficult to, to stomach, you know, because um, even – it doesn't matter how confident you are as a person and whatever. It fucks with you when you have to let go of that, because like, you work very hard to get it, and, um, you know, uh, like even like there's documented research that shows Olympic athletes after the Olympics go through depression. Um, so there's that there's the post-comp blues. That's very real. Um, yeah. So I think that's fun because as soon as I finish that league show, it's like all right, next thing.
0: You got another right? goal that's what I have to
1: focus on. So. Yeah. Right, and so even even if I'm like, ah, God, gained two pounds, it's like, all right, well, let's go to the gym and crush some heavy weights because I gained two pounds, so I should feel better. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the, that's kind of the mindset I use, and usually having you know strength to focus on as an endpoint as opposed to um, the way I look was actually more productive for me in the off season for bodybuilding because it, it, like when you're just training for hypertrophy, hypertrophy is such a grudgingly slow thing for a natural athlete who's been lifting more than five years that um, you're like looking for minuscule amounts of hypertrophy and quite frankly it's easier to get focused to train hard if you have do xyz and we're going to try and get stronger where you can you have tangible you can see that happening right and so that for me at least was very motivating and um and i actually got more hypertrophy in the off-season just because I was, I was able to train harder because I was more engaged. And
0: volume goes so, yeah.
1: right, right. So now, you know, what I probably do is keep to my powerlifting training, but cut it down to once or twice a week uh, on the main lifts and um, and do a lot more accessory work, a lot more higher reps and, um, you know, probably give it a good six to 12 months of building in in that sort of uh, set principle, as you said. Yeah. And uh, before, I, before I started to die down.
0: Yeah. Cool. And with your powerlifting, you've obviously been very successful. Um, and, you know, as they say, good bodybuilders make good powerlifters because, you know, they just can work hard and, you know, all the uh, other mental traits that bodybuilders. The mi-
2: the, the mindset carries over. Yeah,
0: yeah for sure. Um But obviously, as of late, you know, power. Which I
1: I find, one thing, I do find weird that a lot of them can't carry that over to business. I know some people who work very hard in the gym who are fucking so lazy when it comes to business. They're like, like, oh, look at my six pack. Where's my sponsorship? It's like, yeah, you look good, bro, but I can find somebody like you in any gym in America. You know, like, I'm under no illusion that I have, like, such a great physique that that that's why I got sponsored by Salvation back in the day. Yeah. No, I got sponsored because I had a good physique. Uh, I was knowledgeable. I was lifting heavy. I was I was popular. Like all that kind of stuff. So you know, for those of you out there who have a great physique, so what? Like you, there's the market is so competitive now. You got to find another reason. You got to diversify and find something else that makes you different. Sorry, sidebar. But, no, no I no.
0: I really like that. That's um. Something that I think a lot of uh, people should take on board. But back to what I was saying about powerlifting. So you've transitioned from bodybuilding where, obviously, you know, the emphasis is on hypertrophy and powerlifting, we start introducing compressive loads, you know, at really high intensities and, you know, always being in extension. And obviously that's taking a toll on your body, you know, um, with your hips and your back. How do you continue to stay motivated for your strength goals? Um whilst enduring, you know, like some of these injuries because they are quite serious. Yeah,
1: When my shit snapped up, as uh, everybody online says, uh, you know, honestly, honestly, when I I feel like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm tired of messing with this stuff because, you know, I'll do the heavy lifting. That stuff doesn't bother me. It's all the mobility work and the rehab and all that. Now, that stuff's daunting, you know, right. to fucking pick up a kettlebell and do some weird shit with it. <laughs> And stretch out for an hour so you can go, you know, squat 135 because that's the beginning of your comeback. Um, People telling me I should quit, telling me I can't do it. Like, you know, I might have been more inclined to say, you know what, maybe it's time to, maybe I did a lot of really great stuff in powerlifting, had a really good run. Um, But now people telling me I should retire and tell me what I should be doing. Oh, now you're in trouble. Like, that's, you tell me I can't, you tell me I can't do something, you told that to the wrong person, boy, like, you, yeah. <laughs> that just ensures that I'm going to do it, so, uh, and I don't, you know, I do have some goals and powerlifting I'm not done with, um, you know,
2: like, things?
1: people, people are such, you know, people are so fucking weak-minded, too, like, oh, I, I herniated this, that means I'm done. Dude, people fucking herniate this all the time and come back and do amazing stuff, like, People people break their backs and come back. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that's what somebody should do who's injured. You know, at the end of the day, you have to decide what you you know you're you're passionate about. But you know, it's like the same thing. I want to see how far I can take it, and I don't think I'm done. And so I'm gonna give it my best shot. You know what? If I I get like I will just deal with it, and if it means I have to give up pousing at some point, then okay. But you know, at least I gave it my all. I didn't sit – I just didn't go cry in the corner because I had my first injury and was like, oh, well, that's it, you know. Um, so, yeah, and, and these people who are – you know, it's always funny people like, oh, well, you must lift wrong because you got injured. Dude, I've been lifting 20 years. Yeah. And I trained fucking heavy for a, for a long time. And look at any high-level athlete in any sport.
2: Over you. Everybody yeah. gets injured. Yeah.
1: Everybody gets injured. So – you know, are there things I've learned that I could do better? Absolutely. Yeah. But is it a sign that somebody doesn't know what they're talking about? No, if somebody's never gotten injured, I think they probably don't lift very hard, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Um, if you've never gotten injured in any sport, then you don't train hard enough, and you probably suck, to be honest with you. Um, like, so it's,
0: it's like, like... Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I mean, no, it's okay. Go ahead. I just wanted to know, do you have a point in your mind that you've already... Um, you know, set out that if you reach that point, then it's going to be time to hang up the powerlifting belt?
1: Uh, in terms of hitting a goal or in terms of getting so frustrated with injuries? Both. Oh, man. Uh, oof. I would say IPF World Champion. Uh, if I ever, you know, was able to get to that, I realized my window would be closing on that. But um, that'd be nice to go out on. But then again, I think if I got it, I would feel... Uh, obligated to defend it, you know what I mean? Because they say you're not the champ. They say you're not the champ to defend. I mean, that's how I felt about that's how I felt about Raw Nationals because I did, uh, you know, I won Nationals in 2014, won the Arnold, got second at Worlds, set the, you know, world squat record. I was like, part of me was like, man, I don't need to prove anything to anybody else. You know what I mean? Like, I I did that, um, and I was not going to go do Nationals. And I, I just I was sitting on my boat one day thinking about, it and I'm like. Now, nah, I need to go do it. Yeah. Because they didn't they didn't know like I was just a bodybuilder who kinda of did powerlifting when I did nationals the first time. Now everybody's gonna be gunning for me. So I need to go back and defend it and show that I wasn't a fluke, that I could do it again, you know? Yeah. And actually that was probably in a way almost more rewarding than any other meet I had done, just because, you know, yeah it was like like if, if I was ever not going to show up that would have been the day right because I'd already won it I'd already gone to Worlds and done well I'd done all this other stuff um, if there was ever going to be a day where I wasn't going to show up at my best and like mentally kind of check out that was going to be the day but no I, I showed up and went 9 for 9 yep. you know and had a, had a PR total so
0: 303 very, kilo deadlifts what's that 303 kilo deadlifts uh, 300
1: and 22
0: and a half. Okay, so that was your other world record.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, so my, my world record was a spot, which is 303. 303 spot. Uh, right. Yeah, and I got silver medal in the deadlift, which is 311 uh, and a half kilos, or three twenty-two and
0: a half and a half kilos. Yeah. Yeah. So, on the flip side, where's that point life for you where if you get ex- excessively frustrated? Yeah,
1: I I think it would be like if I started to get to the point where you know I'm getting so injured that I have trouble playing with my kids, you know, um, you know, chronically, or or if or um, if I had somebody who I really respected who works with a lot of athletes who said, listen, you know, this this is not going to get better, and you need to consider you know your long term health. Then Then I think I would I would consider that. Like I'm not. I'm not uh, completely delusional, you right. know. But every every physician I've talked to, you know, who have worked with athletes, they've all said all this stuff is recoverable. Right. You know, it's just going to take time. You know, it's going to take a lot of rehab work, and it's going to take a lot of work. Well, I'm not scared of the work. I mean, I remember I tore my pec in 2007. I remember back in 2007 or 2008. I'm sorry, um, back in 2008, people were like, "Oh, he's done," you know. And um, the rehab was a long rehab. It was 18 months before I was back to full strength. And they told me it was going to be 18 months because that tissue takes a long time to heal. And I, well, they didn't, first off, the first surgeon I went to said, we can't fix you. That that you tore it inside the muscle. We we can't fix you. And I found a really great surgeon uh, named Michael Corcoran and uh, give him a big shout. I I love that guy. Great, great surgeon. And uh, he said, well, you know, we can try. He's like, it's like I can't promise you anything, but we can try. And I said, well, let's again. I'd rather try and have it not work and say I did, I did everything I could, right? Yeah. But I remember the night before the surgery. The night before the surgery, I went, actually went and trained back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I remember thinking it's gonna work. And if it doesn't, we'll fucking figure something out. We'll find something. You know what I mean? I don't. W- whatever. Um, did I lose you there for a second?
0: Yeah, yeah. Now we're back. We're good.
1: Okay, yeah, I said, you know, if it doesn't work, we'll figure something out. You know, yeah. water polo, whatever. Like, we'll find something, yeah. you know, to, to, to compete at a high level. We'll find something to, to get passionate about and, and whatever. But it, I think deep in my heart, I thought it was going to work. And yeah. um, so I remember, you know, it's, it's crazy going under having anesthesia. Have you ever had anesthesia? Yes, I have,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's, like, it's literally like, like you lose, like, two hours, you know. Like, you're out and then you're up. Like there's no time has passed. There's no dreaming, nothing. You have no perception of time. And so I, I woke up and I remember the nurse was right there. And I, I about grabbed her by the shirt and was like, how did it go? You know, like immediately. And uh, my wife was like, yeah, you pretty much like slurred every word and were almost incoherent. Um, she said, no, you was on morphine. And uh, she was like, I, I remember hearing her very clearly. And she said, the surgery went well. And said a bunch of other stuff, and it didn't even read. Like, as soon as I heard it went well, I I remember I had this very clear thought. I said, I'm going to be back. I don't care how long it takes. And uh, so a lot of people, you know, they're not willing to put in that rehab work. They're not willing to do the little things. I'm making a video about my rehab right now. Like, I spend about an hour every day, uh, probably not quite that, probably about 40 minutes, doing rehabilitation and mobility work because that's what it's going to take. And, um, you know, like I said, I'd rather put in the work and if it doesn't work out, at least I know I gave it everything I had. Um, but I cannot accept—I can accept failing. I cannot accept not giving it my all.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, you're a very incredible man, mate. Um, and <laughs> I just—I'm just
1: doing what I like, man. I—I tell people, people are like, man, you have so much dedication to do this and that. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, it would take dedication to keep me out of this stuff, to keep yeah. me not doing science, to keep me out of the gym. Like, that's. That's fun for me. That's what I'm passionate about. So it makes it easy. I just think a lot of people like you know, they don't they maybe get that feeling of motivation, but then they go it's gonna be hard. But I don't like I get that feeling of motivation. I'm like, alright, let's let's see if we can make this go even more, you know what yeah. I mean? So like that's why I'm up at ten o'clock at night on a podcast for somebody who's in Australia, you know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs>
0: uh, it's we appreciate it. I
1: don't know, this is the shit that gets me fired up, you know, yeah. so yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, and I'm not knocking people who they want to work a nine to five. They want to just have kind of a stable life. They don't want stress. And that's cool. Like I, I get that whatever makes you happy. But for me, I just would not feel good getting to the end of my life and being like, I wish I'd done more, mm-hmm. you know? And so, cause you don't know when that's coming. That could be tomorrow for me. At least I know I emptied the tank. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if it's in thirty years I wanna know I empty the tank. If it's in forty years, fifty years, whatever it is, I wanna know I emptied the tank.
0: I think a lot of people need to uh, take a few leaves from your book lane and start, you know, applying them to everything they do in life because it's it's uh, a very fulfilling way to um, live from, you know, what I've seen you do and it's yeah, inspirational. Well, just,
1: just be honest with yourselves, you know, like if that's if you don't if you don't want if that's not what you want, then that's okay. Right, like I don't judge anybody for what they want, like to makes them happy. But if you say that you want to achieve something, you say you want to uh, live a life of progression, and you want to, you know, contribute something to the society, you want to do something great with your life. Um, it's going to require a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. It's going to require a lot of time. And um, but you know what, time and hard work never bother me. I always like the saying, "Time is going to pass no matter what, so you might as well get what you want." Sure. But as, not what you want though as Tony Robbins says we don't get what we want we get what we have to have if it's just once if it's just a want when it gets hard you're going to let it go right yeah. but if you have to have it you're going to make it you're going to make it a priority and make it work
0: yeah and speaking of your passions I want to ask you about Lucene, Lane because it wouldn't be a Lane Norton interview without Lucene. now right in my, right
1: in my wheelhouse here yeah
0: here we go I'm winding you up now um So your PhD studies um, showed that leucine scales with protein intake um, and people have often fallen under the illusion that they have to hit this minimum threshold um, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Um, But the literature is now suggesting that there's not a minimum threshold, there is indeed a maximum by which more leucine will have no further benefit to muscle protein synthesis. Can you elaborate on the practical implications of this?
1: Well, I think there probably is a a minimum threshold. Uh, At least we saw it in our research. Um, um, You know, if you do, if you titrate in, um, like, free leucine, if you titrate in free leucine, you will see kind of a dose response. But you have to remember that we're talking about, uh, if we're talking about whole protein sources, there's a digestive component, there's all these things. So what we saw was... You had to get to a certain amount before you started seeing it show up in the blood. Okay. And uh, that amount for the average adult is probably about two grams, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, now again, if you have somebody who's huge, you know, three, two 250 or 100 kilos of lean body mass, you know, then maybe it's a little bit more. If you have a bikini girl who's 50 kilos, that's probably a little bit less, right? But in general, for an average sized person, probably about two grams. Um, but there definitely does seem to be a cap. Um, now, I don't think it's a hard cap necessarily. I think what probably happens is, you know, like uh, there was a study from Stu Phillips where they, they gave like different doses of, of egg white albumin yeah. and um, looked at the protein synthesis response. And, and 20 grams was not statistically different than 40 grams. But it was a, it was higher. It was higher. It just wasn't statistically different. Now, if they pump those numbers up to 20 or 30 subjects in each group where they have seen statistical differences, it's hard to tell. But um, I think if you look at the curve that was drawn, it looks like an asymptote. And so for people who are not familiar with mathematics, an asymptote is something where um, it keeps approaching a a point. It doesn't hit it, but it keeps approaching it. So if we – like, for example, if uh, – like, for example, 100, right? So maybe it goes – 20, 40, 50, uh, 60, 65, 69. Like, and then the, the increments keep getting smaller, right? So where you're getting up to where it's 98, 98.3, yeah, 98.3, yeah, yeah, 98.5. 90, right. But it never gets to a it – it, it keeps getting closer without – so that's what I think probably – you get to a point of protein intake where you just don't have an appreciable difference between the two. Um, And I think that that's probably for most protein sources. I think that 40 gram mark is probably about right. Um, If you're talking about something like whey protein isolate, it's probably more like 30 grams because it's much more leucine content.
2: Um,
1: But yeah, I think think somewhere around like three to four grams of leucine, you're probably maxing out the response.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, That answers that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about physiology uh, now in response to dieting and I'm going to test you here because this question is threefold lane. So firstly, metabolic damage and adaptation whichever word phrase you want to call it um, you know, it's all semantics. We know in the literature as well as anecdote that there is an adaptive uh, thermogenic component that exists to prolong periods of energy restriction. And um, And you've pioneered reverse dieting, which is, you know, stepwise, incrementally uh, increasing calories after energy restriction. Now, to my knowledge, you're still of the contention that um, to eliminate excess body fat and all the rest of the adaptations, you still stepwise increase in calories. So the first question is, are we any closer to determining the underlying mechanisms of metabolic adaptation the second part is is it a matter of the science simply catching up to your anecdote which we see happen with like refeeding and things like this and yeah. finally are the psychological drawbacks of slowly increasing calories more harmful than the physiological potential weight bound, rebound
2: yeah
1: okay so this can be, a, this, can be a, this can take you a while uh, uh, I know, so, you're, ti- I
0: know uh, you're tired now, so I probably should have hit you with no, this no. one at the start. It's right. Do you mind if I uh, get a drink real quick? Go for it. Go
2: for it. I'll be right back.
1: Usually I save this for my Facebook uh, AMAs, but we're having a beer, so... <laughs>
0: This is, this is by far one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've ever done, Lane, so of <laughs> thank it is. you very much. I feel, like, I feel like I should have a beer, but it's only 2 o'clock here, so I don't yeah, know my moral, we gotta co- say, my moral we gotta compass say, doesn't agree with that.
1: we got a saying in Florida, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, so that. Uh, cheers. Cheers. So uh, the first question was, are we any closer to uh, identifying the underlying factors? Um yeah, I mean there's – we have identified a lot. You know, There is a drop in basal metabolic rate. There's a drop in pretty much any uh, – every component of energy expenditure. Now, we think that it's probably the non uh, – the NEAT, the non-exercise uh, adaptive thermogenesis uh, that's probably the, the biggest change. Um, and um, you know, Lyle has this number he likes to throw out, which is 15 percent, 15 percent, 15 percent. The basal metabolic rate doesn't change more than 15 percent. Um, I think that's probably true for most studies you look at. And keep in mind, one, that's an average. You're reporting means. If you actually go in and look at data, there are probably people who didn't change at all, right? So it, it is individual. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is you're not going to get an cook to approve a, a bikini diet where they're consuming 800 calories a day, or, not an cook, I'm sorry, an IRB, which is uh, the university board that approves studies, uh, to do three hours of activity a day on 800 calories. You know, like most IRBs are not going to approve that. And so you have to understand the level of adaptation, and a lot of times it's going to be proportional to how restrictive the diet was. Yes. And so, if you're only doing a moderate restriction, you're only going to see a moderate adaptation, most likely. Yeah. Um, now, and for, for practical purposes, you know, Lyle said, well, it's, it's – uh, most of it's – and me and Eric Helms actually had this discussion. He said, well, I think it's mostly NEAT, you know, BMR doesn't – OK, I don't really care. At the end of the day, for practical application, whether it's NEAT, whether it's this, whether it's that, the point is, is that your your maintenance calories drop. Like, they change. And I remember one time I was having kind of a – not a debate with Alan Argon, but a discussion. And he said, well, I think people should just take their calories back up to maintenance. And I said, they wouldn't gain weight by definition. They would not gain weight. So what you're saying is, you would think they should take it up to their predicted maintenance. Yes. Because if they gain weight, it's not maintenance, right? And so I just like to identify those terms. So yeah, I mean, even even your gut microflora adapt when you diet.
2: Yeah.
1: It's pretty incredible. Um, and I actually find some of the adipose tissue adaptations pretty pretty wild as well. Um, you know what happens with leptin. Um, you know, uh, we, we, there's some evidence that if you regain body fat very quickly that you can produce new fat cells, uh, at the end of a diet. Um, and, uh, people like when I, when I, I, I had the slide where I put that up there and uh, uh, it's a study by McLean and, uh, people like, I, I see like all the women in the audience go, Oh, you know, like, cause they've all had this like rebound at some point point. they're like, Oh my God, I've got, you know, more body fat. Well, and they say, well, can you ever get rid of them? Um, I don't think you can get rid of them, but I think what happens is, you know, we know that leptin, that you can become leptin. We know that obese people have high levels of leptin. So obese people, they're just insensitive to it. Well, I think what happens is when you diet down, people have said, you know, can you maintain a lower body fat? Are you always just going to go back to what you were, um, to your, to your uh, body fat set point? I, there's some evidence that you can make, if you hold a body fat for a year or two that that will in effect become your new set point. And I've actually seen this for myself. Like for me to maintain uh, 205 where I was competing at or 93 kilos, I'm very lean at 93 kilos when I was competing. Um, I've lost some lean body mass since then because of the injuries. But when I was fully in competition mode, I mean I – like honestly, I had like some striations in my glutes when I was competing in, in 93 kilo. And um, so – how did I get there? Well I maintained that for a long period of time, for probably about a year and a half. Yeah. And at first I would be like before I'd be very hungry at that level of body fat. And at that point I didn't I didn't feel it. Well, I think what happens is you're left you probably get more leptin sensitive. You don't you have less leptin but you become more sensitive to the amount you have. Yeah. Just like if you're obese you have more leptin but you become less sensitive to the amount you have. Yeah. I think that's at least my best guess of what's going on there. Um, as far as do I still believe in the stepwise addition of calories? It I'm much more attuned to the individual goals of the person. And we have this conversation when they come out of prep. Yeah. And I will say, you know, listen, what is your goal? Is your goal to minimize body fat regain? If so, it means you're going to feel like shit for a while longer. Okay. And I've had people say, listen, I you know, I I I would like to prevent blowing out, but I want to feel normal faster. Cool. Boom. Let's take you up, you know, by this many calories, yeah. right? A I don't a do it as a, yeah, I don't do it as a one size fits all. It's just yeah. I'm trying to prevent unnecessary fat gain. Yeah. But i you know, if somebody's been dieting and they're down to twelve hundred calories a day or eleven hundred calories a day is you know bikini girl. And you know, a, a lot of them what I'll get is like, oh, I want to main, I want to maintain this or whatever, or I want to minimize fat regain. And then three weeks in, it's very obvious that they can't be adherent to it, you know, because we're trying to go slow, and they're just not hitting their numbers. And I'll just say, listen, this, 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 you're just shooting yourself in the foot, you know. What now? So let's let me ask. And I did this with one girl and it seemed to work very well. I said, what is the minimum calorie that you feel like you could hit and be consistent with, right? And we started there. And then once she started hitting them, she actually got a little bit leaner at first. Mm. I think because the stress was off, you know.
0: Water reduction. And,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just – yeah, it's just interesting how that works. I've, I mean I've had people – and I know Lyle and a lot of these people say, well, it's just all – if you regain – I know Menno says this. If you regain all your lean body mass and you regain all your body fat, your metabolic rate goes back up to normal. Yeah,
0: that's from the Minnesota study in some of Menno's work, yeah.
1: Yes, and again, keep in mind – Yes, yes, and I think that in general that's probably true, but I have seen people get up to ridiculous calorie intakes, and they didn't put on enough lean body mass to justify the difference, like there was no way. I've had females up to 400 grams of carbohydrate intake a day and like 80 grams of fat, and they put on a couple pounds of lean body mass. Like it It just simply would not justify the difference in maintenance, right? Now, people may say, well, it's just neat and they're fidgeting more or they're just doing more – maybe. But in all practical purposes, it's still a difference, right? So I don't really care if it's neat, whatever it is. If it's a practical outcome, that's what I care about. And so I'm not saying that these guys are interpreting the research wrong. I think that some of the research just hasn't been done to answer some of these questions. And again, I know I've got a lot of criticism for reverse dieting, but – you know, I've tried it enough times, and not, not like some people. Like some people, they add in calories and they get leaner. So it's, you know, I think what's maybe happening is you're just having a a bigger increase in metabolic rate than you are in calories. It's, it's hard to explain how that would happen, but
2: Nate, I have, I
1: have seen it. Mm. I have seen it, and yeah. you know, it's it doesn't happen with everybody. Uh, and some people, you know, do just kind of linearly gain body weight and body fat. But to me, that's still a better outcome than just plowing it on right after a show, right? Now, I know Eric has said that he thinks you should put back on like 10% of your body fat or 10% of your – I think something like 10% of your body weight within a certain period of time. I, I think that's probably fine. I'm not going to say that's the wrong way to do things. Um, I tend to get a little bit more individual with people because, I mean, I've, I've got you know a client and one of them said to me, they said, Lane, I just like to be lean. Like I – out of my social life and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But it's not my job to tell her, hey, you should have more of a social life. Like it's my job to say, okay, this is what she values, and so I'm gonna try and get her that, right? It all comes um, down so to
0: yeah. their goals with what they can actually do and follow.
1: Right. I'm a libertarian, so I'm like, you know, you can do whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what libertarians are but
0: Yes I am. And, my... and then as
1: far as as far as like um the psychological aspects, I think that's a really good question. And it actually caused me to get more individual with these sorts of things, because yeah. at first I just thought it was cool as shit to watch people stay really lean and get their calories up high. Okay. And uh, I remember I had a client of mine in Denmark. His name is Rasmus, and um, he was up to 420 grams of carbon take a day and like uh, 85 grams of fat, I would say. I think I and he, him. he, yeah, he had like striated shredded like not kind of feathered like feathered glutes like striated to (laughs) shit you know and no I'm like wow you're doing really well and he comes to me one week he's like Lane, I still feel like shit like I'm still I still don't have any sex drive this and that and I remember to register like like of course he doesn't like he's still that lean like he's you know he probably feels a little bit better because he can eat but you know, still, he's, being at that body fat is not an enjoyable experience. Now, maybe if he held it for a long time, maybe it would get better like we discussed. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, he's just like, you know, I just want to feel normal again. And he's like, is it okay if I put on some body fat? And I, and I was like, well, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. Like, But I was just so caught up in how freaking cool yeah. it was, yeah. you know, like a, like like the scientist in me was so caught up in that that I kind of forgot about that. And so now I've tried to do a better job about thinking about, okay, yeah. well, what about – you know, you making sure that we have an open dialogue as to what makes sense
0: for them. Yeah. That's um it's yeah, it's incredible because I've obviously watched from a distance for a very long time and now obviously having the chance to speak to you, but you know, the evolution of all of these ideas and concepts, you know, from two thousand and you know, nine and ten when you first began trying to implement them has been absolutely phenomenal. But one of them like yeah,
1: you know, reverse dieting actually came up. Was um, I had a few clients who I had in shape, you know, six weeks out from a show, and I just said, "Well, we can start them out a little bit early." And the weirdest shit started happening was they just kept getting leaner as I added calories in, you know. And I thought, "Why can't we try this after a show?" You know. And so that's that's kind of where it started from.
0: Well, that's that ties in with my next question. And again, people are going to think that I've given you the script here, but I haven't. Um, <laughs> metabolic. Capacity. I'm just that good. very good metabolic capacity um you know that is the increase in your um total metabolic um rate per se and how much food you consume without increasing body weight now is this too good to be true and outside the context of reverse dieting where you're coming back up to your body's baseline or homeostatic you know settling point whatever you want to call it Outside of that context, is this phenomenon possible? And if so, what are the mechanisms that underlie that?
1: Well, I mean, metabolic capacity is more about what I I kind of say, like fuel in the tank. Um, And uh, I think Eric Helms, he says when you you start dieting, you're circling a drain. Like you only got so much. You can slow it down. You can do things to try and thwart it. But you're still circling the drain, right? And eventually it's all going to go down. So... (laughs) Um, You know, so think about like if you've got a brain, right, the more water you put in that bathtub, the longer it's going to go before it actually runs out, right? So that's what I'm trying to do in terms of I'm trying to fill that bathtub up as high as I can, right? And so that's what I can term as metabolic capacity. And so the way I always explain it is if we took two people that were genetically identical and everything they're doing is the same, everything. You know, it's not happen, but everything they were doing was the same. Let's just for the sake of argument. But one person maintains their their body fat on 2,400 calories a day, and the other person maintains on 3,300 calories a day. Who is going to have an easier time getting leaner?
2: Yeah.
1: It, yeah. Intuitively, it's going to be the person on 3,300 calories a day because they have just more room to cut from, right? Yeah. They can start out cutting at you know high 2,000s as opposed to starting out like around 2,000, yeah. right? Because I mean, if you know this from coaching, people stall. Like, it's not like I've only had like one or two clients in the history of me doing this where I sent them the plan and then over 12, 16 weeks they never had to adjust it. You yeah. know, I may have had that phenomenon happening, but it's very rare.
0: So, in and this case, um, sorry to interrupt, but I'll, okay. forget, I'll forget my question. Where you um, have the person A on 2,400 calories and person B on 3,000 uh, calories, and obviously this person will have an easier time dieting, but. Can you increase the amount of calories they consume and change the size of the bathtub without yeah. getting fatter, so to speak, which is what most people interpret metabolic capacity to be? That's the misinterpretation, I think.
1: Yeah. Anecdotally, yes, I have seen it. Um, but yes, there, are, there is a you – know, people will say, can you get up to a you know, crazy amount of calories and not gain weight? No, everybody has a threshold where they're going to start gaining, like everybody – yeah. But sometimes it's stepwise. Sometimes you'll go up, they'll gain like two pounds in a week, and then they'll, you'll keep adding and they'll just stay there for a few months. You know, that happens too.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, it's hard to tell how somebody's going to respond until you take them through that process a few times. Um, and so what I'm looking at is at every step I'm comparing, and I actually have a really good uh, slideshow of Lauren Conlon uh, throughout her career and seeing where her calories were at each body weight. So what I'm looking at is I'm looking at okay, they're at eight percent body fat. Last time they were eight percent body fat, they were maintaining their body weight on 2,200 calories a day. Now they're maintaining on 2,400 calories calories a day. So that's a net win, right? Yeah. Um. Maybe they they like, we get them down, you know, we get them down and they go they go back up. They like they put all the weight back on they lost, right? But if they put it all back on, but now they're maintaining on 300 calories more than they were last off season. That's a win right yeah. does that make sense yeah, yeah so what i'm looking for is that every every step that hopefully they're made they're made able to maintain on more calories that's that's the goal anyway
0: okay and then obviously assessing whether that um increase in body weight is you know excessive fat water or, or right. muscle that that's something that you need to consider as well obviously right when- it's a, yeah,
1: it's a trade-off, you know. And I've gotten people to the point where we just saw them start to linearly gain body fat, and when that happened, we You'd you know back, we yeah. we tapered it back, and yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: and that's where things like mini mini cuts and those sorts of things in off-season come in handy.
0: Yeah, awesome. And Lane, you've uh you've been an absolute trooper, sticking this out. And as you've I'll finish your beer, I'll ask you one final question. Um, with the two lines of contention that, and I know we touch on this briefly, but I want to get your final say on this. We have science and, you know, schooling, education, elitism on one side of the spectrum. And then we have, you know, education disdain where there's, you know, people who say, such as, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk who say, well, school's, you know, you know, school's not made for everyone and, you know, I'm successful, right. I don't need school. And then obviously you have, you know, people who say, well, if you don't have a PhD, you're a dumbass. Um, what are your thoughts now let's give this context what are your thoughts on these two schools of uh, thinking for obtaining qualification for fitness industry professionals
1: I think that I think what school does and there are people who are PhDs who are idiots and there's people who are MDs who are idiots Um, but what happens is it gives us more level of confidence, right? Like if somebody's done a PhD, we're more confident that, that, that they're going to probably know what they're talking about, right? Just because that's such a rigorous process. It tends to weed out people who are not intelligent and quitters. Mm -hmm. Um, just like, um, I have a friend who is, are you familiar with Navy SEALs? They're like our most elite fighting force. Like if you see the, the training these guys have to do, like, it's just insane. It's absolute insanity. The fact that anybody makes it out alive is, is crazy. Well, one of my friends was a 12-year Navy SEAL sniper, and he was talking about how during the training, and he was talking about some guy that was in training with him. And he was like, "Yeah, that guy was a real shitbag." And I was like, "What do you mean?" He was like, "Oh, he's lazy." And I'm like, "What? Like, how does that even happen?" Like, yeah. and he said, "He said, Bud, some turds just won't flush," was his actual <laughs> response. And uh, I do think there's a little bit of that in, you know, in in, in terms of the doctor community and medical community and, and PhD, you know, like some some people slip through the cracks. You know, it does happen. You know, it's not a perfect system, and so um, you know there are cheaters. I mean, there's people who fabricate data. That does happen, unfortunately. Yeah, right. um, there's a lot of safeguards in place for that, but it 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 does happen. Um, I. You know, I don't associate with with a certain individual anymore because I became pretty convinced that they were fabricating data. And, um, you know, so it it does – it is out there. It does exist. And so – but we usually have a high level of confidence because in academia there's so many safeguards in place to prevent that from happening. Um, So do I think that having a PhD is necessary? Absolutely not. Do I think that the experience of going through that and having design research to, to read the literature, to really become an expert on that literature, that that can be a helpful thing? Absolutely, yep. absolutely it can. Um, if, I, if I take somebody having a nutritional science PhD, is that gonna make them a good coach? Absolutely not. Mm. Like you, you, you would have to do other things. Like I learned most of my stuff not from the stuff I read for class, but from stuff I read on my own. Like research I read on my own because I was passionate about it because that's what I wanted to learn. All this knowledge I gained about this stuff, a lot of it is it's out there for free. It's out there for free just sitting there, you know. And, uh, you know, pick up a textbook. People ask me, like, what, what books of nutrition do you read? I'm like, pick up, a, pick up a physiology textbook, pick up a biochemistry textbook, and pick up some uh, nu- nutritional biochemistry textbooks and read them. Some of it's not going to make sense theater you'll learn more in those three textbooks than you could ever imagine you know and that that information will only costs you a few hundred bucks you know but most people don't want to do that right like that's that's typical. um but as far as you know do i do i think that schools for everybody no i don't think it's for everybody I, I think that some people are just not good with formal education and it doesn't mean they're not smart and it doesn't mean they maybe can't be good coaches or trainers and those sorts of things um but i think that that most people look for the path of least resistance, um, and so you know most people that say, "Well, I wasn't good at school." I love what Eric Thomas says. I say, "You ain't, You say you ain't good at math. You ain't never study. You know. You say you ain't good at writing. You never write. You know." So um, I think that most things. It's. It's. I like what Les Brown says. He said, "If you do, if you do what is easy, your life will be hard. You know. If you do what is hard." to live a life of fulfillment. So I'm not saying go to school. I'm not saying we'll get a PhD. But anybody who is interested and passionate about learning, I'm always going to say, hey, would you consider a PhD? Or would you consider, because to really go through and have to design those experiments, and I can't, like at least at University of Illinois, which is where I was, which is a very, very good university, very prestigious institution, uh, especially for research. it is so rigorous. There are so many people that quit and drop out, that it really hardens you into like it. Just just the experience to make you better at everything. Yeah. Um, it's the only thing in my life I ever wanted to quit. Like uh, really, really, truly, in tears, right. said I want to quit this. You know, and, um, and and to have that experience to come out the other side and eventually you know get through it it makes you realize that you can be a lot stronger. And you so I mean that it,
0: respect for it too.
1: Oh yeah. And, and I remember uh when I, the day I graduated I called uh Dr. Tracy Anthony, who was actually the person who taught me a Western blot. She's a former student of Dr. Lehman's and actually she's a very accomplished researcher now. Mm-hmm. Uh did a lot of the original work on leucine actually. Yeah. Um got laughed at when they proposed leucine as what was simulating muscle protein synthesis. So um at so that was fun so hey for you guys laughed at us we were right uh-huh. so <laughs>
2: um
1: but uh you know she said oh honey everybody want because i told her i'm like you know tracy like i really wanted to quit like i feel bad saying that but i really wanted to quit. So, oh, so, oh honey everybody wants to quit at some point yeah. so it's you know it's it's a good um it's a good metric but no it's it is not foolproof there are people who have done it who don't know their ass from a hole in the ground you know so um, at the end of the day, school, whatever you do, it should be about acquiring that knowledge. I nobody hires me because I have a PhD. They hire me because they have a high confidence that I know what I'm talking about. And that's not just from me doing a PhD, that's from the information I put out online. That's because they see the clients I've worked with, they talk to the clients I work with, they've seen the stuff I've done in the industry. If I just had a PhD and just Try it. Like take somebody who has a PhD and say, hey, I'm doing online coaching. See how – it's going to be crickets. You know what I mean? Like um, people go, that's nice. i want to go use this guy who's got like 500 client testimonials over here, right? So I think both are important, like I said, but I think that ideally it's not mutually exclusive, but you can do either one and be successful, um, and ideally you do a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, it's very multifaceted, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Lane, I'm going to leave it there because I know if I uh, give you any more questions, you'll continue to go for hours, and I'm sure you need to go to yeah. bed. Yeah.
1: We could turn this into a movie. It's like is, an hour and 40 minutes, like an action been, movie, you know? This has
0: been one of the most enjoyable, motivating, and um, illuminating podcasts that I've done. So I thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, I'd like to thank you again for all the work that you do, all the content you put out for free. Um, you know, it's what I base my practice on here. You're somebody that I aspire to be like, and I admire you very much. So, thank you very much for being on the podcast, and we'll speak to you next time.
1: Thank you, Jacob. I really appreciate it, man. I had a good time.
0: Thanks, Lane.